Get more from your store with Safeway's Fresh Pass program and enjoy more services like unlimited free delivery and all your grocery needs. More exclusive perks like 5% off every day on your favorite organic or open nature items across the stores and more rewards that never expire. Get Safeway's Fresh Pass to enjoy exclusive perks, unlimited free delivery, and more. You can start your 30-day free trial today. Visit Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass for program details. Service available in select areas. Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week it's my turn, and the next week it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. It's Sunday, May 4th, 2003. An early morning call goes out to the Bowling Green Fire Department for a suspicious fire in Hugh Poland Hall dorm on Western Kentucky University's campus. As Fire Captain Bob Sanborn and his three-man crew head to the scene, students begrudgingly respond to the fire alarm as they trail out of their rooms, down the back stairwells, and into the night. As you can imagine, these students are grumpy. They're congregating in the parking lot, waiting to go back inside to their beds. Because this isn't the first time a fire alarm has gone off in the middle of the night. And it's 4 a.m. to be exact. There's been burnt popcorn, pranksters have set off the alarm, and the university has their scheduled drills. I remember this from living on a college campus up in San Francisco. We had that same thing, drills, and then one time the fire alarm went off from who knows what, like you said, burnt popcorn at like 2 a.m. And it was so annoying. It happens. And, you know, you have to leave because the one time you don't, it could be a real fire, but you're in your pajamas and it's not fun. Oh, yeah. And the RAs aren't going to let you not evacuate. Like you have to, and it's the right thing to do. But as you mentioned, you're just, you're grumpy, you're annoyed, you're like, what the hell's going on? You're not expecting that what we're about to hear has happened to have happened. Right. Like you said, they were about to learn a horrific truth. Now, once the students had evacuated from the building, each floor's resident assistant, the RA, went room to room, checking to make sure everyone had gotten out. And that's when it's discovered that room 214 is locked and there's smoke spilling out from the bottom of the door. The RA notifies the campus police immediately, and the campus police manage to unlock 214's door. But the officers are unable to enter the room due to the thick smoke. At this point, I mean, it seems the fire is out, but the smoke is still spilling out of the room. The campus police fill in the recently arrived Bowling Green Fire Department and the firefighters get straight to work. The firefighters enter the pitch black room. And remember, it's filled with the thickest of smoke ever and it's 4 a.m. It's dark. 
they confirmed that, yes, the fire has indeed been extinguished and they turned to exit the room. But that's when Captain Bob Sanborn's attention is caught. He sees something glistening out of the corner of his eye. Upon further investigation, Captain Sanborn realizes that there's a person, a young woman buried amongst the clothes on the burnt bed, and she's miraculously still alive, but barely breathing. Oh my God. Two firefighters extract the young woman from her smoky bedroom and carry her out of the building with what looks to be a sheet. I don't know why they didn't use a gurney, but maybe they weren't expecting to find anyone. There's um, actually photos of it online and I'll try and include them on our Instagram post. But for those who are just listening right now, there's one firefighter pictured at her feet and one firefighter pictured at her head. As soon as they exit the building, they lay her in the closest patch of grass and give her oxygen and other life-saving measures while they're waiting for the ambulance to arrive. This is when students realize that something truly horrible has happened. And it's to one of their own. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. They now recognize the woman as 18-year-old freshman Katie Autry. So there was no mistaking who it was, despite the fact that she was essentially being burned alive in her dorm room. They knew right away. That's how it was made to sound in the documentary I watched. I don't know if it's in conjunction with them knowing what room she was found in. I'm not sure, but it is made clear that that is the moment they realized something horrible had happened and they knew that it was Katie Autry. Now, Let's learn a little bit about Katie. She was born on June 10th, 1984 in Rosing, Kentucky. And when I say this is a teeny tiny town in Kentucky, I mean it. Because in the 2000 census, there was a population of 41 people. She didn't grow up there, but that's where she was born. She had a really close-knit family growing up, and she was especially close to her older sister, Lisa, and her cousin, Barbie because they were all around the same age. And this trio dreamed the same dream. They wanted to grow up and open their own beauty salon with Katie on makeup, Barbie on hair, and Lisa on nails. That is so cute. It's adorable. And I love that they were all going to do it together. But as with life, not everything was perfect. Katie eventually ended up in foster care as a teenager because her mother became ill and couldn't care for her or her sister Lisa any longer. Fortunately, she was placed with a loving foster family who made sure Katie maintained a positive relationship with her birth parents and her extended birth family. So 
despite this transition in Katie's life, it seemed to really give her the stability that she didn't have it with her birth mother. And she really blossomed in this new environment and she became known for always smiling. In fact, there's this footage of Katie walking down a runway modeling this cute tank top white dress. It almost looks like a very fashionable tennis outfit. And she's walking down the runway with her 100 watt smile and you can just tell that she has a beautiful soul and a beautiful personality. And Johnny White, who's Katie's cousin, further underscores this point. He said, you couldn't be in a bad mood around Katie. She always wanted to cheer you up if you had something going on. She was a cheerleader throughout high school at Hancock County High School and applied to several colleges, but ended up choosing Western University to remain close to home and to her family. Like I mentioned before, she was very family-oriented, so this was a priority of hers. She's been described as quiet and shy at first, but once she opened up, she became lively and outgoing. And I think we can all somewhat relate to that. You know, um, it took her a little bit to get comfortable with people, but once she did, she was her true, authentic self. By the time December 2002 rolled around, she had been at Kentucky University for a semester. And this is when she found a new roommate whose name was Danica. Now, these girls bonded extremely fast. They became best friends right out of the gate and were essentially inseparable. Where you saw one, you would see the other. And school, work, and life in general for the next few months were going great for Katie. That is until the morning of May 4th. If you remember, we left off with Katie on the grass, surrounded by firefighters and fellow students. She has a heartbeat, but is barely breathing. Oxygen is administered as they wait for the ambulance to arrive. As this is happening, a bystander recalls a firefighter say, if you're a praying person, now is the time to pray. Just as the ambulance arrives and whisks Katie to the Bowling Green Medical Center. As Katie's en route to the Bowling Green Medical Center, she utters three words. And it seems from the documentary that the EMS personnel had a hard time forgetting it. She said, take me home. And when I heard that, it did give me chills because these could be her last words. And what a sad last sentence to have been spoken. As Katie fights for her life, Katie's family is soon notified. She's eventually flown to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville because they're better prepared to treat her for her extensive injuries. These included third and fourth degree burns. She had been sexually assaulted. She had experienced severe beatings about the face and there were several puncture wounds in her neck. She's eventually placed into a medically induced coma and unfortunately succumbs to her injuries three days later. But back at the crime scene, investigators from multiple agencies get straight to work despite the chaos of the scene. Because if you remember, there's the fire department there, there's EMS, campus police, not to mention an entire building of students in the parking lot waiting to see if they can go back in. And from the get-go, it's obvious to investigators that they're looking at a crime scene. 
While there had been items stolen in an attempt to throw investigators off the trail, it's clear that there was more to the story than just that. Captain Sonborn, now if you remember, he was the fire captain at the beginning of the story. He informs investigators that Katie's face was wrapped in a sheer nylon stocking, like the type used by bank robbers when they're, you know, obscuring their face. Right. At least that's how Captain Sonborn describes it. He further explained that when he removed the stocking from her face, that extensive amount of injuries on her face was so shocking to him, he was surprised that she was alive. On top of all of that damning evidence, the arson investigator concludes that Katie herself was the fire's point of origin. And he specifically says, there's no way that this was caused by someone falling asleep with a cigarette or something accidental. It had to have been purposeful and it was intense. So intense that he knew that there had been an accelerant used. The sheets, blankets, and mattress were almost completely charred. In fact, there was almost a hole all the way through the mattress that Katie had been on. And it was concluded that a hairspray, a can of hairspray, had been used as the accelerant. There's actually photos of um, the crime scene and they have a close-up of a purple can of hairspray right by her bed. There was also a wet rag that was wrapped around the sprinkler system to keep it from working properly. Fortunately, enough water was able to leak out and put out the fire. Because if you remember when the campus police arrived and when the firefighters arrived, the fire was out, but it was still very smoky in the room. Mm -hmm. But what struck investigators as odd was the fact that only one side of the dorm room had caught fire. Which if you remember, Katie shared the room with her roommate, Danica, but Danica was nowhere in sight. And it left investigators wondering, was she responsible for Katie's attack? At this point, they're not sure, but they're determined to find out. Before investigators call it a night, they begin to question students, you know, all the students outside in the parking lot, and they learn two very important things. Number one, Katie returned to the dorm building alone between 1 a.m. and 1.30 a.m. And this is confirmed by the student working the front desk of the dorm building who you had to show your ID as you walk in to confirm that you need to be there. This student confirms that Katie returned to the dorm building alone between 1 a.m. and 1.30 a.m. She was wearing a burgundy shirt and blue jeans and was in good spirits. She was smiling like she usually did. So nothing seemed to be amiss. The second thing investigators learn is Danica's whereabouts. The following morning, Danica is interviewed. And she tells investigators about the wild party that she attended with Katie the night before. But she also tells investigators that Maurice was also there. And this is when we learn that Katie had a boyfriend who was a football player for the same college. And it turns out that this party was crazy. It was the weekend of Kentucky Derby. So let's just picture a lot of booze and it's a big deal. Paige, so you didn't go to college in Kentucky, but you lived in San Diego for some time and experienced the race atmosphere in Del Mar. And you kind of have a similar understanding of how serious this weekend is for people that live in the area. Yeah, part of college, I lived in San Diego. 
And the Del Mar races are huge, maybe second only to the Kentucky Derby, if you will. People of all ages would go, especially on opening weekend. There were hats. There was drinking beforehand, taking the train or other Mm -hmm. forms of public transportation to get up to the racetrack. And you would just go and have a blast while you were there and then probably have a blast after. So blast before, blast there, and a blast after. So it's definitely a party atmosphere this weekend. It's a party atmosphere. I've also been to the races up in Santa Anita here in California. And those are also a pretty big deal, but much lesser scale than what they would have been dealing with in Del Mar or the Kentucky Derby like they were here this weekend. So definitely big crowded party weekend, people coming in from all over the place, going all over the place and drinking all of the things. Now, imagine that and take it up 10 more notches because this party was at the Pi Kappa Alpha, otherwise known as Pike Fraternity House on Chestnut Street. So you're not only mixing Kentucky Derby weekend, but you're mixing college frats. So you know there was an obscene level of drinking that weekend. And it's not clear if Maurice was a member of the fraternity, but it is clear that all three were there. And Danica goes into the relationship between Maurice and Katie a little bit more. She tells investigators that Katie was in love with Maurice, but the feelings weren't mutual. You see, it seems that Maurice was seeing other girls on the side and some flirting on Maurice's part at the party caused a major fight between Katie and Maurice. So much so that, at least in the documentary I watched, it was a big scene and it had to be broken up by members of the fraternity and Danica. And they told Katie, like, maybe it's time for you to go home. It seems that she had asked Maurice to go home with her, but he declined and she left. Fortunately, this fraternity set up this very creative and clever solution to avoiding their partygoers driving home drunk. They had their pledges, whether you agree with this or not, but they had their pledges be the DDs and they were responsible for driving home any guests that had been drinking. So Katie gets in the in a truck with this man named Ryan Danica tells her goodbye and that she'll talk to her soon. And that's the last time that she sees her best friend. Danica does tell investigators that she did talk to Katie one more time after that, though. It seems that she had called Katie about an hour later. So a picture 2.30 a.m. She's just calling to make sure that Katie got home safely and to see how she's doing after the evening's events. I mean, she got in a big fight with her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend or whatever you want to call Maurice at this point. And Katie answers the phone and she's telling Danica that she's on her bed now, but she had been sick a little bit earlier. And you can assume that she probably means because she had been drinking. But things take a turn for the worse when suddenly Danica hears someone enter the dorm room and Katie says, I'm scared. There's someone here and I don't know who it is. And at this point, Danica is frantic because no one should be going into that room except for 
Katie and Danica. And Katie's in the room already and Danica is talking to her on the phone and is nowhere near coming home. So who could this person be? Danica tells Katie to put the guy on the phone and starts bombarding him with questions like any true BFF would. She wants to know who he is and what he's doing there. Now, she doesn't recognize the voice on the other end of the phone, but that voice tells her that he's the person that drove Katie home and that not to worry, Katie's in you know good hands and that he'll be leaving soon. As Danica is about to end the call, she hears a second male's voice in the background. And that's the last thing that she had heard. This revelation has investigators re-examining everything they've learned at this point. Now they're wondering if two people are involved. And at this point in their investigation, there are two prime suspects. Number one is Maurice. And the second is the fraternity pledge slash DD, Ryan. Now, the following morning, news breaks about Katie's devastating attack. The surrounding Kentucky communities are outraged. And that's truly an understatement. It is hard for people in this area to accept that something as cruel and evil that happened to Katie can happen in their hometown. Because they view these places as big on manners and helping others. There's lots of Southern hospitality and yes, ma'ams and no ma'ams and yes, sirs, no sirs. And so this is something that people are having very much trouble accepting. People are also terrified. I mean, there's an attempted murderer on the loose. Will he strike again? They don't know, but they don't want to be his next victim either. Right. You can imagine what the entire Western Kentucky University campus was thinking and feeling, especially those that were in the dorms living. Absolutely. And this uproar from the community launches the detectives, the investigators into full speed ahead as if they weren't already going that fast, but they're more determined than ever to get the responsible party behind bars. Now, that's when they find and interview Maurice, Katie's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. What's interesting about this is that he's referred to as both in the documentary. So, I mean, who's to say what his title was at this point? But I just thought I'd throw that out there for our listeners. Right away, police want to know three things. They want to know Maurice's whereabouts at the time of the murder. They want to know what he was doing and if anyone can corroborate this info. And they don't hide the fact that he's a person of interest either. It's evident to the detectives as Maurice is sitting in the interview, though, that he's distraught. He's crying and he's in shock. And he does reveal that he was home with another girl at the time of Katie's murder. And when they go to check it out, his alibi is rock solid. They have to let Maurice go. And that's what they do. Now that one of their two prime suspects has been eliminated, they focus their sights on Ryan, the DD slash pledge of that fraternity. So they go to the fraternity house, but Ryan isn't there. But investigators learn some new information about the night before from interviewing the other members of the fraternity. Eyewitnesses confirmed that yes, Ryan did give Katie a ride home, but they also acknowledged that there was something else missing from the story that the investigators had heard previously. The partygoers explained to police that there was someone else in the truck that night. As Katie got in the truck, 
a drunk guy by the name of Stephen was in the back seat. Now, the weird thing about this, according to the documentary, is that Stephen supposedly was in the truck throughout the entire party. I don't know if he got drunk and was waiting for a ride home. I don't know if he was sleeping. None of that is very clear. But I just thought it was really unusual that there's this party going on and there's this random man who doesn't even go to the college, by the way, sitting in the truck. Whatever the case is, the three of them, Katie, Ryan, and Steven, drive off from the party and head straight to Katie's dorm room. Eventually, investigators get in contact with Ryan and they do interrogate him. It turns out that he also has his own side to the story. And his story is corroborated by other eyewitnesses. He tells the investigators that, yes, he did take Katie home to the dorm rooms, but that he dropped her off outside of her building around 1 to 1.30 and watched her enter the building alone and happy. He goes on to tell investigators that he did have Stephen still in the car and Stephen had told him a little ways after Katie's drop-off that he needed to get out of the car and that he'd walk the rest of the way home. I don't know if it was for fear of his car getting puked in or what, but Ryan agreed. I mean, he's not Stephen's caregiver, so he lets him out of the car and drives home. Now investigator sights are set on Stephen, souls. As mentioned, he didn't attend Western Kentucky University, but he was visiting from Scottsville with a friend named Lucas Goodrum. They were there to celebrate Kentucky Derby weekend and, you know, get lit. Right away, he admits to investigators that he did in fact have a sexual encounter with Katie after she arrived at her dorm. However, he stresses that the encounter was consensual. Afterwards, Stephen received a phone call from his friend Lucas, who then arrived at the dorm. Now, remember, this is all according to Stephen's account of what happened. He then says that Lucas wants to be intimate with Katie, but she slapped him for his forthrightness. And that's when things get dangerous. According to Stephen, Lucas attacked and sexually assaulted Katie for 30 minutes, during which he also viciously beat and stabbed Katie with a pointed object. She fought back, but her efforts proved to be futile. According to Stephen, Lucas then forced him to cover up his mess by sexually assaulting Katie and spraying hairspray on her genitals to then set on fire and destroy any seminal evidence. Both men were arrested and initially they both pleaded not guilty. However, Stephen then changed his plea to guilty after prosecutors agreed not to seek the death penalty if he testified against Lucas. As a result, Stephen pled guilty to seven criminal counts, including murder, first-degree rape, first-degree rape by complicity, first-degree robbery, first-degree arson by complicity, first-degree sodomy, and first-degree sodomy by complicity. He was found guilty and is serving a life sentence in prison with no possibility of parole. Lucas, on the other hand, was held for nearly two years in the Warren County Regional Jail awaiting his trial. He was acquitted on all accounts in a jury trial and um, is now free. Now, we're not here to say who's guilty and who's not guilty, but we do want to point out that there was a massive difference in privilege between the two defendants. And that could have played a role in how or what the outcome of the jury was. 
So one was from a low-income family while the other had access to the dollar journal fortune because of who his stepfather was. And that's really where I'm going to leave it. But it's something to consider that maybe justice wasn't fully served in this instance. Katie's mother and aunt did file a lawsuit against the Western Kentucky University Pi Kappa Alpha Fraternity, the WKU Student Life Foundation, and three resident assistants. Their lawsuit claimed that the university and other named defendants failed to enforce policies or provide adequate security for their daughter and niece. This wrongful death lawsuit led to a $200,000 judgment from the Kentucky Board of Claims. In the 18 years since Katie's murder, her family visits her gravesite often. It's their way to cope and feel close to her and a way for them to remember her sweet smile and positive impact she had on all who met her. In a sense, that's what the majority of our victims' families are left with, just beautiful memories. And I think that with that, it's a good place to leave this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.